A lot of people think that Los Alamos um, is kind of a bomb factory, but that's really a misnomer because the they do research and, and development for weapons designs there. If you're like me and you grew up in Texas, you probably feel like you know a lot about the state. Six Flags over Texas, the Alamo, the list goes on. In truth of fact, Pantex is where the weapons are actually put together and where they're taken apart. But every now and then, you learn something new. Since 1975, Pantex has actually been the, the primary assembly, disassembly, retrofit, modification, like center for nuclear weapons. I'm Chris Blake, and this week on Texas Wants to Know, we learn how a federal facility in the Texas Panhandle became the nation's hub for nuclear weapons. One of the reasons I wanted to do this episode was because I grew up in the Dallas area, and I didn't know anything about this plant. And one of our reporters pitched this as a podcast idea, like, hey, did you know, like, all of the retired nuclear weapons that we have are in Texas? I was like, I had no clue. So I looked into it a little bit more. And do you get the sense that outside of the Amarillo area, outside of the Panhandle, maybe not as many Texans realize that, you know, this plant that has either assembled or disassembled most of our nuclear weapons is in the state? I kind of doubt that they do. I mean, I think uh, I think the experience is probably closer to yours when you get quite a ways outside of Amarillo or outside the Panhandle region, for sure. I think there's also, I mean, I hate to say it, kind of an age aspect to this. I mean, it's safe to say I've got a few years on you. Uh, and it may be that some folks around the state who um, who existed, uh, not existed, they're hopefully still with us like I am, but, but we're, you know, kind of living and working through the Cold War days of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and on up into the 80s or until around 1990 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Carr Ingham is an Amarillo-based economist. So it, it may be that, um, you know, that as younger Texans have grown up in the state outside of Amarillo and other regions of the state, I, I suspect it's quite a lot like you. May or may not know that thing even exists, and if it does, what does it do? The Pantex plant was built during World War II. Initially, what was its purpose, and why was Amarillo chosen as the site? So we were originally opened as a load assembly and pack plant for conventional high explosive munitions. So what I mean is like 250 pound bombs that would be dropped from an airplane um, or 500 pound bombs, things like that. And initially there was actually this really big push from the Amarillo Chamber of Commerce. The president at the time, I believe his name was Ethan Albion Simpson. He was a, a veteran of World War One and like a prominent attorney in the area. Um, he really, I think, recognized the value of these war industry facilities and I think understood in a way that others maybe didn't the value of bringing like war production facilities to the area. That's Katie Paul. She's the Pantex plant historian, which honestly sounds like a pretty cool job. So he was an advocate for the Amarillo Army Air Base, which was the first sort of defense facility in the Amarillo area. And that was actually built and opened uh, in 1941, 1942 timeframe. And then Pantex came shortly after. She told me the Texas Panhandle was chosen as the site because it's far enough away from our borders with Canada and Mexico and located in the middle of the country to allow access from both coasts. The plant is technically outside the city limits of Amarillo along U.S. Highway 60. Then I guess the next step after World War II ends okay. saw that it was sold to Texas Tech for six years for something like a dollar. Is that right? 
Yeah. So after the war was over, there was this uh, government organization called the War Assets Administration, and they were organized to try to deal with all of the like property and facilities and like leftover equipment from all of that war effort. And so they actually were in charge of what to do with the land here. In Texas Tech, they were called Texas Technological College at the time. They were deeded sort of part of the land and then the other part. So it's a total of like 16,000 acres-ish, maybe more like 18,000 today. But Texas Tech actually was deeded that land for a dollar. And Tech planned to use that land for um, an agricultural research facility. So they actually ended up with the southern half of the plant and they signed an agreement that said for 25 years they had to do research and after that they could go into commodity farming and that's what they did. But there was what we call a recapture clause and what that means is that if the government ever had, you know, a national security concern or a reason to need the land, they could recapture the land and do with it what they needed to. And so that's what they did in 1951. Pantex was reclaimed, the the sort of northern part of it, uh, where most of the buildings were, was reclaimed by the Atomic Energy Commission and opened as a, a nuclear weapons assembly facility. So then the northern half that the mm-hmm. government decided to take back, what was the role then and how did it, I guess this is where the nuclear part comes into play, right? During the Cold War? Yeah. So in the very early days of the Cold War, um, you know, right after, I mean, immediately after World War II, the government was trying to figure out, you know, what the nuclear weapons complex was going to look like. And that that's sort of the old word for it is complex. Now it's called the enterprise. But the Atomic Energy Commission was trying to figure out what what this enterprise would look like, like where all of the parts and pieces and everything would would sit within the country for the supply chain to make, you know, to actually assemble weapons. And so Pantex played a pretty vital role in that. Then post-Cold War, what does the reduction in nuclear weapons and the maintenance of the remaining ones look like? In the early 90s, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union, with sort of this this policy of, uh, you know, trying to work out unilateral dismantlement, a lot of our um, early, early mission just in the, the straight right after the Cold War really was just going from assembly to disassembly and working through like maintenance activities, you know, continuing to maintain that nuclear deterrent, the, the stockpile. And really today, that's, you know, one of our key missions is that we're making sure that the nuclear deterrent, you know, for our our nation and our allies, you know, those things can be, those things are safe. If they are needed, they can be used, you know, and we also are still working through dismantlement. We're, we're still doing that today. When the Cold War ended, the United States and Russia both had, you know, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in our stockpiles. And we've since been reducing those numbers. Today, we only have 1,550 weapons deployed, and then some number of reserve weapons on top of that. And all those surplus weapons from the Cold War era um, have either been taken apart or are sitting waiting to be taken apart. And Pantex is the only place that does that. So a huge part of the mission for the last 30 years has been disassembly and separation of those components. Dylan Spaulding is a senior scientist in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. What happens when a nuclear weapon is, quote, retired? So when a nuclear weapon's retired, the first thing that happens is it'll come off of its delivery system. And then typically where Pantex comes in is that those warheads will be uh, delivered to Pantex for disassembly. So the workers at Pantex are the ones who actually have their hands in the weapons, who are actually turning screwdrivers and wrenches and following very specific protocols to to take apart those warheads. You said they're doing this by hand. 
with these very dangerous pieces. What's the risk involved in that? Is it pretty dangerous or are there enough regulations in place that the workers themselves are relatively safe? There are a lot of regulations. There are a lot of safety protocols, but it is it is inherently extremely dangerous work. You know, I would say that arguably Pantex does some of the most dangerous work in that they're they're the only site where, you know, people are actually putting their hands into nuclear weapons and separating explosives which are wrapped around the fissile material, plutonium typically. So when they disassemble a weapon, um, the plutonium is in what's called the nuclear explosive package, which is the part that actually makes the nuclear yield of the bomb. And in order for the bomb to work, that's compressed with a shell of explosives that's wrapped around it. And they they make those shells at Pantex as well. So they have a, a specialty and expertise when it comes to explosives manufacturing. When they take it apart, what they'll do is they'll separate that explosive from the plutonium part, and then they'll package the plutonium for storage. So they put the pits in special containers that are supposed to prevent them from uh, becoming corroded or uh, being exposed to moisture or other contaminants. And then those containers will be doubly packaged and they'll be put into storage at Pantex. But as the years go by, Spalding says finding more and more places to store it is getting harder. Plutonium is radioactive. It has a half-life of 24,000 years, so it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Part of what the U.S. is talking about doing now is making new plutonium pits, and that involves taking the ones we have on the shelf, basically sending them to Los Alamos, where they would be purified and recast into new components. And those would be actually installed in some of the first new weapons designs since the end of the Cold War that are currently being proposed. So the plutonium will be here long after any of us or any trace of us. That's right. It'll be here for a long time. And and the U.S. currently has a, a waste problem in that we don't really have anywhere to put that waste. We have a lot of excess plutonium that the labs, the national labs are also working on disposing of. And in that case, they turn the plutonium metal into an oxide powder and then would send it to underground disposal. Spalding says the risk of explosion is low, but there are other concerns. The danger from plutonium really comes from inhaling particulates. So if uh, powder is inhaled or if somehow powder were to be dispersed through, say, a big fire or some kind of incident at the at the site, um, that would certainly pose a risk for surrounding communities. We have entire groups of people and people who dedicate their entire career to making sure that things are um, disposed of properly. And there are different strategies and like teams of people across the United States that think about these things every day and make sure that things are handled appropriately. And then they they come to Pantex and they help us do all of those things and check all the boxes and follow all of the steps. And those steps and boxes can be pretty lengthy, especially when you're when you're talking about, you know, a nuclear material. We've spent a lot of time talking about the history of Pantex and what happens to nuclear weapons when they're decommissioned. But what about how the plant relates to its community? After all, Pantex is among the largest employers in Amarillo, along with the school district and Tyson Foods, the economist Carr Ingham says. Safe to say that it packs a punch economically. I mean, anytime a city with uh, roughly, let's see how many jobs we have in Amarillo, about now, about 120, nearly 126,000. So that's a good mix, uh, but 4,500 of them come from one employer. So it's the largest employer. Uh, the largest payroll, probably the the highest uh, salary single employing entity uh, around here. And so they don't publicize, or at least that I've been able to find, 
uh, their payroll out there. But if you just sort of spin out that 4,500 and look at some other anecdotal information out there, I mean, you're probably easily up around 300 million bucks or so in payroll, which is pretty significant for a city the size of Amarillo, a couple hundred thousand people or a little bit more. Like with any large employer, he says there are positive effects on the local economy. There's no doubt, however, that this multiplier concept exists. And that is to say that by the sheer existence of that plant out there that is funded largely by federal dollars and that money coming into this region and paying those folks creates or supports the existence of other jobs in town because what do they do? They, they live here. They spend those payrolls here. They do what the rest of us do. They buy cars and homes and go out to eat and shop here at Christmas time. You know, the trade-off for people in Amarillo to think about is, is you know, the jobs, which is an obvious benefit, but balanced against the, the health and safety and environmental impacts that come from this. So, you know, Pantex has been designated an EPA Superfund site, which means it's heavily contaminated already. The EPA Superfund program is responsible for cleaning up some of the most contaminated land in the country. The program can force the responsible party to pay for the cleanup, or if there is no responsible party... It provides the EPA the funding to clean up the site. And that mostly comes from a legacy of decades ago, um, the way that waste from explosives manufacturing was handled. You know, there's already pretty significant groundwater contamination, presence of chemicals that were used in explosives manufacturing in the soil and in surrounding areas. And it's, you know, you have to remember it's surrounded by productive farmland and, you know, grazing land and things like that. So... Um, that's another place where I think it's important to recognize those impacts may not just be limited to the site, even if it continues operating as it is now. And certainly the safety standards and environmental standards are better now than they were you know, during the Cold War when work was done a little more haphazardly and the impetus was on getting stuff done regardless of the impacts. But the legacy of that kind of work is that, that that environmental impact is there to stay. We have a group also that started out as environmental, I think they were called environmental restoration, and now they're called environmental projects. So they're charged with the long-term stewardship of our site. So they are the ones who, like, if a, if a, like a chemical has been found in, let's say, water or in soil or something like that, they're the ones who are charged with working through a project in order to remediate that. So to um, clean the water or, um, you know, uh, replace the soil, dispose of it, clean it, however it is that they have to do that. And they've been working for, for a long time and have really made some great strides in trying to, you know, sort of combat some of those really early, those things that happened really early in Pantex's history that have contributed to it being a super fun site. You were born and raised in Amarillo. What are the feelings about the plant in the community? I'm actually really excited that I, I was able to get a job at Pantex. It was one of those sort of holy grail jobs that they have a historian and I can, I can be that person. But... Uh, like growing up in Amarillo, I always heard, you know, I had friends whose who's, um, family members worked at Pantex and I had always heard that it's a good place to work. They have good benefits. Like I'd always heard that kind of stuff. Everybody knows somebody who works out there, which is not saying a great lot. It's like asking if you know anybody that teaches in Amarillo. Well, of course you do. I think most people have positive feelings about the fact that this plant exists, not only as a significant part of the community, a large employer here, big payrolls interesting work that goes on out there, and uh, I think largely supportive of what the mission of that plant has been, and that is defending and doing its part to defend the, the great United States of America. But really, the thing that, especially as I've gotten older, that has really stuck with me, it's more of the community impact. 
So all the time I'm hearing about how there are people who work at Pantex who are giving back to the community. And I know this sounds like sort of a, a, a canned answer, but it really is true. Like we have, and, and now that I work here, I've seen that like we've been a, a, involved in the United Way Fund since it's like early inception. We have been involved with the Salvation Army, with the Pantex Regional Science Bowl, which is a really cool thing that encourages middle school and high school kids to um, be interested in science and they actually compete and then can go to nationals, which is really cool. And I remember the science bowl from when I was in, in, in school, which is awesome, but like, you know, building homes for Habitat for Humanity, um, helping out with a snack pack for kids, all sorts of other stuff. I think that the community involvement aspect is the, maybe the, for me, the coolest thing. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote and produced this episode with editorial support from Cooper Mall and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan. 